Hi, I'm Neil Orford, and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2013. This is a wrap-up of the articles that caught our attention in the last month. It's been a big month in the New England Journal of Medicine, with six articles relating to critical care, and indeed it seems there's a bit of a theme around the heart. So the first looked at the issue of family presence during cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And this is something that we've all thought about or have heard about with paediatric resuscitation, but this is an adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest study. So in this pre-hospital CPR study, they enrolled 570 relatives of patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest to be present during CPR versus standard practice regarding the presence during CPR, that is, whatever the team who arrived were used to. In the intervention group, 79% of relatives witnessed CPR, while in the control group, 43% witnessed CPR. So there was a separation of treatment effect, if you like. The primary outcome was post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms in relatives at day 90. And this was significantly higher in the control group. So odds ratio of 1.7, confidence intervals 1.2 and 2.5. The secondary outcomes include the resuscitation characteristics, that is, duration of ACLS, number of shocks, etc., the stress levels amongst medical teams, and interference by family members and outcomes. And there were no difference between the two groups. So this is interesting stuff and suggests that relative presence during CPR may be good for the relatives and certainly not bad for everyone else. The second New England Journal Medicine study looking at cardiac arrest was a long-term outcome study in elderly survivors of in-hospital cardiac arrest. So this large observational study followed 6,972 patients who were over 65 years of age and had survived a hospital discharge after in-hospital cardiac arrest. Now that's important because there's obviously a large number who didn't survive a hospital discharge. They report a one-year survival of 58.5%, with risk factors for death at one year, including older age, race, with black patients having a worse outcome, and gender, with female patients having a worse outcome. Neurological disability predicted survival, with the risk-adjusted one-year survival, 72.8%, for those with mild or no neurological disability, and that declined to a fairly dramatic 10.2% for those discharged in coma or vegetative state. So they're interesting numbers and interesting survival statistics for this population. The New England Journal then published three articles looking at PCI and cardiac surgery. The first, non-emergency PCI at hospitals with or without on-site cardiac surgery by the MassCom investigators, looks at the rate of emergency CAGs following PCI. So we know that that rate has decreased from 6 to 10% in the early days of PCI to 0.1 to 0.4%. The increase in primary PCI for STEMI has provided justification to PCI services in non-cardiac surgery hospitals. But what about elective PCI in non-cardiac surgery hospitals? The Seaport E trials showed a non-inferiority result with PCI in non-cardiac surgery sites compared to cardiac surgery sites. This study, the MASCOM trial, was a prospective multi-centre non-inferiority RCT. 
patients requiring PCI, and they excluded LVF less than 20%, left main more than 50%, and single vessel supplying viable myocardium, were assigned 3 to 1 to PCI at a non-cardiac surgery hospital or transfer for PCI at a cardiac surgery hospital. They randomised 3,691 patients and there was no difference in the primary endpoint, major adverse cardiac event at 30 days, or for the individual components of the primary endpoint, death from any cause, myocardial infarct, repeat revascularization, and stroke. There was also no difference at 12 months. So this study adds to the evidence around PCI and suggests that it can be safely performed at non-cardiac surgery sites in select hospitals. The second study looks at the effects of off-pump and on-pump coronary artery bypass grafting at one year by the coronary investigators. Now they have previously reported safety with off-pump versus on-pump CAGs at 30 days for the rate of primary composite outcome of death, infarct, stroke or new renal failure requiring dialysis. They now report quality of life and cognitive function at one year. So in the 4,752 patients in 79 centres in 19 countries, there was no difference in quality of life or cognitive function at one year. In addition, there was no difference in the primary composite outcome or revascularization rates. So it is important to note that this trial looked at patients with, one, over 70 years of age, with peripheral arterial disease, cerebrovascular disease, greater than 70% stenosis or renal insufficiency, two, 60 to 69 year olds with at least one of diabetes requiring treatment with an oral hyperglycemic agent or insulin, the need for urgent revascularization after an acute coronary syndrome, an LVF 35% or less, or a recent history of smoking, or three, 55 to 59-year-olds of age if they had two of those risk factors. Finally, the hazards ratio for the primary outcome in pre-specified subgroups most strongly favoured off-pump in the single vessel group. So this is a confusing area, off first on-pump coronary artery bypass grafting with a lot of results in certain subgroups and this really adds to the mix. To add further to that mix, the gob Cabby study group published the off-pump versus on-pump CAGs grafting in elderly patients. So this study reports outcomes in elderly patients requiring first-time routine surgery who are randomised to on- or off-pump CAGs. In 2,500 patients 75 years of age or older, there was no difference between on-pump and off-pump CAGs with regard to the primary composite outcome of death, stroke, MI, repeat revascularization, or new renal replacement therapy within 30 days and within 12 months after surgery. Patients were matched at baseline, and it's worth noting that one-year mortality was low, 7 to 8%, partially due to the exclusion of those needing urgent surgery and a low rate of EF less than 30%, which is only 2 to 3% of the population. Again, this study suggests that in experienced hands, either technique is effective in elderly patients. The final study in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, moved away from cardiology and looked at cortisol metabolism during critical illness. This observational study from Vandenberg's group in Belgium looks at cortisol metabolism in critically ill patients compared to matched controls. 
They report the ICU patients have an increased total and free circulating cortisol, lower corticotropin, increased cortisol production, and reduced cortisol clearance, and that there is an association between reduced cortisol clearance and a lower response to corticotropin stimulation and reduced liver and kidney cortisol metabolism. So the authors then pursue the following discussion points. One, adrenal insufficiency as defined by ACTH response may be misleading as an associated reduced cortisol clearance may lead to high cortisol levels. Two, the effect of sustained critical illness was not investigated. Three, 200 to 300 milligrams of replacement cortisol may be too much if cortisol levels are high due to decreased clearance. Now, all this is non-conclusive and really suggests that we don't completely understand endocrinology and critical illness. Moving on to JAMA, there is one trial relating to critical illness, the ACCESS randomised trial. This randomised RCT examines the effect of eritoran in patients with sepsis. Now, if, like me, you don't know anything about eritoran, it is a synthetic lipid A antagonist that blocks LPS binding or lipopolysaccharide binding at the cell surface of MD2 TLR4 receptors. As LPS is a big factor in gram-negative bacteria activity and activation of the inflammatory cascade, the hypothesis is that eritoran will attenuate this and benefit patients. That seems plausible. The study randomised 1,962 patients within 12 hours of sepsis onset to eritoran, and the number was 1,304 in that group, or placebo, the number was 657, so 2 to 1, for 6 days. The groups were well matched at baseline, and there was no difference in 28-day mortality. The primary outcome, 28.1% for eritoran, versus 26.9% for placebo. There was also no difference in any of the secondary outcomes, one-year mortality and subgroup analysis. So on face value, eritoran was ineffective in sepsis. Now obviously there was a lot of uh, data leading up to suggest it would be helpful. So is this the definitive trial? Well, there could be more to the story. And perhaps the, this adds to the debate about the faulty design of sepsis trials. So combining heterogeneous patients and heterogeneous organisms in the same analysis may be an issue. There was a mix of gram-negative, gram-positive and mixed organisms in this study and a mix of lung, abdomen, urinary and skin sepsis. So you could argue, shouldn't this have been a study looking at gram-negative sepsis only and perhaps excluding urosepsis? Secondly, the mortality prediction was 40% and the witnessed placebo prediction was 27%. So again, we've got a study that was powered based on an over-prediction of mortality in sepsis and perhaps it's time this stopped. There's two articles we included from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. The first looks at mechanisms of cardiac and renal dysfunction in patients dying of sepsis. So this study explores the mechanism behind cardiac and renal dysfunction in sepsis. They achieved this by the unique and challenging route of rapid post-mortem cardiac and renal harvest in 44 septic patients, performing immunohistochemistry and comparing them to control organs from brain-dead transplant and trauma patients. So this is a really challenging study to do. 
They report, firstly, that cardiomyocyte injury but not cardiac cell death occurs. That is, sepsis does induce significant injury to cardiomyocytes, but not death. Secondly, there is focal renal tubular injury, with most of the renal tubules are normal. That is, they agree with work by other investigators who report that in certain types of acute renal failure, including sepsis, most renal tubular cells are either healthy or reversibly injured. So, interesting stuff. The second study by the Approaches Trial investigator looks at recombinant human activated protein C for adults with septic shock, a randomised controlled trial. So that's a bit of a surprise to have another RCT looking at activated protein C. But this study offers some unique aspects to this highly controversial area of intensive care research. For a start, it is the only investigator-led RCT looking at APC with prowess, prowess shock, etc., all commercial trials. It was conducted in 24 ICUs in France who were all experienced in the use of APC with a 2 by 2 factorial designed that randomised patients with persistent septic shock and no contraindications to APC to APC versus placebo and hydrocortisone, fludrocortisone versus placebo. Now, the withdrawal of APC from the market in October 2011 occurred during the trial, and at that time, 208 patients had received APC, 233 placebo. The Safety Committee stopped the APC design of this trial but continued the steroid trial. So the results of this shortened APC part of the trial was that there was no difference in 90-day mortality, 46.3 versus 47.6%, which seems pretty high. There was no interaction between APC and steroids and there was no difference in adverse events. Finally, let's move to critical care medicine. The first study we'll look at is ICU admittance by a rapid response team versus conventional admittance characteristics and outcome. This prospective observational study compared the characteristics and outcomes of patients admitted from general wards to ICU through a rapid response team, of which there were 355 patients, versus conventional referral pathways, of which there were 349 and this was conducted over a two-year period. They excluded patients from ED, direct admits from theatre, and other ICUs. They report that the rapid res- response team patients were older, had more severe comorbidities, were more likely to have sepsis, almost threefold increase, they were me- more likely to be medical, and had a longer hospital length of stay prior to ICU. Crude mortality was worse in the rapid response team group, so the odds ratio of 30-day mortality was 1.57 in that group. But this relationship disappeared after multivariate analysis. That is, it was due to underlying characteristics. So what does this mean? Well, it could be that there are sicker, older, complex medical patients on the ward who develop sepsis after a longer hospital length of stay and are not recognised by conventional methods and not referred. It is only when they deteriorate that they are recognised. This is an argument that supports rapid response teams, but perhaps also to consider whether anything could be done to recognise these patients earlier. The second study in critical care medicine that we looked at was 
a national emergency airway registry for children landscape of tracheal intubations in 15 PICUs. So there have been previous single-centre large tertiary PICU studies describing adverse tracheal intubation-associated events as common, so 20 to 40% of tracheal intubations, with 3% incidence of severe adverse events. This prospective observational study in 15 PICUs in North America characterizes self-reported tracheal intubation process of care and outcomes using the National Airway Registry. So they report 1,715 intubations with a median age of one year and 34% requiring intubation for respiratory failure. 11% had a history of difficult airway and 98% of intubations were successful with 14% requiring three or more attempts. The average adverse event rate was 20.4%, with severe adverse events occurring in 6.3%. Now, it's worth noting that the rate of cardiac arrest, perhaps the most definitive patient outcome, was 1.7%. Finally, in only 22% of cases did an attending provide the airway. Also in critical care medicine... There is a systematic review and meta-analysis of proton pump inhibitors versus histamine 2 receptor antagonists for stress ulcer prophylaxis in critical patients by Deb Cook and colleagues. Now, the evidence for PPIs or H2RAs for stress ulcer prophylaxis and ICU is unclear, with previous systematic reviews and the surviving sepsis guidelines recommending either. This systematic review looked at 1,720 patients from 14 trials and reports the following. PPIs were superior at reducing clinical important upper GI bleed or overt GI bleed. There was no difference in VAP, ICU mortality or ICU length of stay. And finally, the trials to date may be outdated as lower current bleeding rates and earlier use of enteral nutrition may have reduced the benefit and cost effectiveness of stress ulcer prophylaxis therapy. In addition, the effects on C. diff infection rates is unclear. The last trial for this month is a phase 2 randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled study of the safety and efficacy of telactoferrin in patients with severe sepsis. This phase 2 RCT looks at the effect of telactoferrin, a recombinant lactoferrin, which is a glycoprotein with anti-infective and anti-inflammatory properties found in secretions and immune cells, delivered enterally in severe sepsis. The theory is that it would reduce translocation of bacteria in the gut. 194 patients with severe sepsis within 24 hours onset were randomised to telactoferrin or placebo. The findings were that they found a reduced 28-day mortality, 26.9% placebo versus 14.4% in telactoferrin. They reduced 6-month mortality with telactoferrin and an analysis of patients stratified with and without vasopressor-dependent septic shock revealed the mortality benefit was more strongly associated with telactoferrin in the group without vasopressors. That is, if you had no vasopressors, 28-day mortality was 2.6% versus 23.3%. If you had vasopressors, it was 22.4% versus 28.6%. No safety issues were identified. Now, during the study, a drug mislabeling error issue occurred, leading to some patients randomly getting study or placebo drug. 
This was retrospectively tracked and analysis performed to conservatively account for this. Still, it is a major flaw in the study and a major pain for the investigators. Now, there is animal evidence of telactoferrin reducing mortality in sepsis models and of anti-inflammatory effects in human enteropathy. So there's a plausible background. In addition, lactoferrin is found in high concentrations in maternal milk with the anti-infective effect of breast milk at least partially attributed to this. So the findings from this phase two study warrant further investigation of telactoferrin. The authors tell us that a phase two, three telactoferrin sepsis trial with a primary endpoint 28-day all-cause mortality has been stopped by the data safety committee based on available data and the data will be unblinded to examine the results. So we look forward to finding out what's going on. Well, that's it for March 2013. Critique Journal Club, come to the site to look at the studies in more detail. Otherwise, we'll see you next month.